0: Well, good morning. I don't know how many of you guys have already seen Toy Story 4 on its opening weekend. I will do my best to not ruin and give you a spoiler alert here. Uh, but I had a great time. I got to see it with the kids this weekend. And honestly, there's a line at the end of that trailer that I think highlights so much of the story arc to the movie if you've not seen it. At the very end of it, you think about the fact that we're four movies in and Woody says, I don't remember it being this hard. If you know the story, if you've seen the story, you can kind of get a sense from the preview, but essentially his child Bonnie is going to have a new toy that's nothing more than a trash spork that is pulled out of the trash can, all right? And he's going to be spending the entire movie trying to reunite Bonnie with the spork known as Forky, all right? And so he's going to go through unimaginable consequences. He's going to go through unimaginable challenges. He's going to do everything he can possibly do to continue to bring Forky back to Bonnie so that Bonnie's happy. But by the end of the trailer, it highlights this idea that uh, Woody says, I don't remember it being this hard. And so by the very end of the movie, uh, Woody's gonna finally make a choice. In the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of a chase that seems to have no finish line, because as we all recognize, Forky is just a piece of trash, right? And in a couple days, if we if for those of us that are parents and know kids as well, they know that we're gonna they're gonna move on to another toy. And so ultimately Woody is on a chase, he's on a race that has no finish line and no real sense of a happy ending. And in the midst of that merry-go-round that keeps spinning and spinning and spinning, finally Woody, at the very end of the movie, is going to make a choice in which finally he's going to stop, and he's going to be still, and he's going to, for the first time in a long time, he's going to see in a way that he couldn't have seen prior, and he's going to love in a way that he couldn't have seen and loved prior. In fact, I think for many of us, as we were watching the movie, even myself this weekend, Disney has an amazing way to play the emotional strings of human experience, right? In one minute, I can be laughing uncontrollably with my kids, and then the next minute, I am crying uncontrollably with my kids, thankfully under the, co- under the cover of darkness so that no one can see, right? Keep my man card in place, all right? Uh, but Disney can just do that, right? And, and I think there's something in Woody's experience that I think every single one of us feels, Right, how many of us feel like we are in the midst of life where we feel like we are dominated by constant hurry, constant haste to achieve goals that seem like often have no ultimate finish line and maybe we're ever never going to even achieve them to begin with. But we keep spinning, we keep spinning, we keep running, we keep running, and all of a sudden there becomes a refrain in our hearts where we say something like what he does at the end of the trailer. I just don't remember it being this hard to keep going and to keep running and to keep chasing Woody's going to make a choice in the movie that I think is going to challenge us as well. And it's this this morning. And here's the idea of the sermon. Here's where we're going to end up this morning. So if you catch this and you want to walk out, go for it. Because you're going to have the whole thing, all right? It's this. Until you and I learn to stop and be still, we'll always lack the perspective to see well. And we'll always lack the passion to love well. Until you and I learn to stop and be still in the midst of all the hurry and the haste of our lives, we will always lack the perspective to see well, and we'll always lack the passion to love well. In fact, I want to take you guys to so a passage this morning in Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to look at a passage that I think for many of us is exceedingly familiar. It's one that you could quote. It's one that would roll off your tongue. And yet what's ironic to me is it's a passage that's exceedingly familiar but I would argue that our experience is incredibly unfamiliar to what Jesus is going to talk about. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, notice what Jesus says to us. He's going to extend us a promise when he says this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here in Matthew 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus extends to us a promise. He invites us into an experience of rest that is utterly familiar as we hear it. But as we walk life out, it feels utterly unfamiliar to us. I think about the reality of life and I think about the invitation that Jesus offers us. And there's a dissonance about these two in our normal life experience. The question is why? Why is it that the reality of life feels so filled with hurry and haste and stress and anxiety, and yet the promise and the extension that is given in Matthew 11 is one of rest and ease and lightness? Why is there such dissonance between these, between the reality of life and the promise and the extension of rest? Why is that? I think there's two ultimate reasons. One is one that we cannot control, and the other is one that we can control. For some of us, we may find ourselves right now in a valley circumstantially that we cannot control, that for anyone to describe this as not hard and not heavy is just completely missed the point. Even this week, there have been stories, even in our own community of families that are facing unimaginable tragedies, that to say that their next few months, next few years won't be hard and heavy is completely miss the reality of circumstances. For some of you, you've you just lost a loved one. For some of us, health is failing, whether that's mental or physical, and it's hard and it's heavy right now. Maybe it's even in your workplace where someone's quit and all of a sudden you've got two jobs or maybe it's a project that's completely failed and it's been thrown on you and you are grinding as the very basic nature of life right now. It's hard, it's heavy, it's difficult. And for someone to say that it's not, it's just to completely miss the reality of life right now in this season for some of us. And so if that's you this morning, if you find yourself in a valley circumstantially that is just unimaginably difficult and heavy, then I, my prayer and my hope this morning as we talk about rest is that you don't feel at all a sense of guilt, feeling like I'm having a hard time finding that kind of experience where I'm living. But I think for most of us in the midst of what is normal challenges of life and normal pace and phases of life, there's still something that we can control that I think is what creates the dissonance with what Jesus is promising and with what we're experiencing. I think we have a problem experiencing rest because we don't know what rest looks like. We don't know how to even pursue rest. And we've got a series of major obstacles to us that don't even allow us to pursue and experience and step towards rest. So what I want to do with our time this morning as we jump off from Matthew chapter 11 is just simply ask the question, why is it we so struggle with rest? Finding rest, experiencing rest, do we even understand what it looks like And how do we build it into our lives? And how do we begin to recalibrate and reshape our own rhythms of work and rest? Because maybe we're a lot like Woody just saying, man, this just feels a lot harder than it used to. Really for us, as we begin to think about what rest is, before I think we can look at what rest is, I think the first thing we've got to do is wrestle with the fact that we struggle to rest. That there are a series of obstacles that prevent us from resting. And this morning, as we kind of jump off from Matthew 11, I, I'm going to highlight a book that I think for me was probably one of the most impactful on this idea of rest. If you want a summer read, I would highly encourage you to pick up Mark Buchanan's "The Rest of God: Restoring Soul by Restoring Sabbath." That he's going to hit some themes that I'm going to try to unpack in our morning and our time together that I think are phenomenal into our culture and to many of us is going to come right in the midst of our heart and it's going to tweak it and it's going to challenge it and it's going to help us to understand what rest looks like. It's going to help address the obstacles to our rest. It's going to help us begin to think about how we actually do it as well. Few topics, few books that I think hit it as well. And so if you want a summer read, it's a great one. I'm going to try to give you a lot of the ideas from this morning. I'm going to quote from it a lot this morning. But I think ultimately as we think about rest, why don't we rest? I think we have a distorted view of rest. Mark Buchanan puts it this way. He says this, that in a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, we think of rest as sloth. That we have a view as we think about rest in which is something like laziness or something like the sin of sloth, that we have a really hard time feeling good about rest or feeling okay about pursuing it. I love this passage in Mark chapter two as we find it out and hear about Sabbath when uh, we find this from the gospel of Mark. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The idea I want you to grab from Mark chapter 2 here, this real quick passage about rest, is this. That Sabbath was given as a gift from God to us. That it was given as a gift. And so we have this view of rest that often feels feels anxious or guilty about experiencing it. And yet we were designed to need rest. That we are designed to have a rhythm of work and rest that we often don't maintain because we have such a distorted view that we see rest as something that is akin to laziness or sloth. Even put this way, I like this. It's not just that we have a distorted view, but I think we have a distorted value of rest. uh, That for many of us, I think, honestly, as we think about rest, we, we think about busyness as if it's a badge that we want to wear on ourselves to show that we have value and that we have worth. And we frankly want to outcompete one another as to how busy we are, as if it makes us more important. You have no idea how many emails I got today. You have no idea that I have not five minutes in my schedule to even have a spontaneous meeting, as if that makes us more important and more valuable. And so we loft busyness up as if it's a badge of our worth, of our value to everyone else in life. So all of a sudden we see this idea of rest as a gift that we feel is a competing value that busyness makes us valuable. And so we have this tension in our lives. And the issue is this, that when we don't rest, when we pursue busyness at all costs, as if it's a badge and as if it's a marker of our value, there are unimaginable consequences that we ultimately face. The first is this, that ultimately when we uh, are unable to stop and be still, we actually lose time. For many of us, we feel uh, pretty prideful that we can manage time with the best of them. But there is something for some of us in the midst of the way that we manage time, always trying to maximize time, that we actually end up losing it. I love this quote from Buchanan. He says this, that all that hurry has gotten to me no farther ahead. It's actually set me back. It's diminished me. My efforts to gain time have only lost it uses the analogy as well that sometimes we manage time and we hold it so tightly that it's like a delicate flower in our hand that we've managed so tightly that we've just crushed it. That for some of us in our own unwillingness to rest and to stop and to slow down and be still, we think that we're managing and maximizing time, but it's actually diminishing us personally and it's actually costing us time. It's not just time, but it's also, I think, most significantly, it costs us passion. I love this quote. How much do I care about the things that I care about? Busyness makes us stop caring about the things that we care about. Busyness kills the heart. Uh, My wife and I got to spend a couple years in China uh, on the backside of seminary and learning Chinese. And one of the most fascinating things to me about the Chinese language is that often the written language is a series of pictographs or drawings of different characters. And the Chinese character for busyness is really a combo of two different characters. One is the uh, character for heart and the other is the character for killing. So that in the Chinese language, they have an understanding that what busyness is at its very essence is a killing of the heart, a killing of the passions. That what drives us, what we care most about, when we begin to spin out in constant hurry, in constant haste, constant stress and anxiety, the things that we care most deeply about begin to become gutted in our hearts, and we no longer care about them the same way. That in the midst of our inability to stop and to slow down, Our very hearts are gutted out from the inside and we no longer care as deeply about the things that matter most to us. It just guts us from the inside. I love the story uh, uh, of a chair upholsterer whose business was mainly uh, from replacing the seat cushions in cardiologist's office. So patients would come in, they would sit in these seats and they would wear the front edge of the seat out. And so the quote is this, that apparently heart patients are so impatient. That even while listening to their doctor's life-threatening diagnosis or life-saving prescription, they sit taut and restless, poised to uh, chafing at the delay. At the edge of their seats, the very reason their hearts are so sick is written in that threadbare upholstery. Can you imagine? In a cardiologist's office, the patients are so having such significant heart issues that they cannot even sit still in the chair itself, and so it's just rubbing the upholstery raw week after week, patient after patient. That it puts us in such a spin cycle that our hearts are just frantic and we cannot see and we can't even love well anymore. A lot of our women were on a women's retreat this past spring in which the speaker talked about the fact that busyness or hurry kills love. That it guts our ability to care deeply for people. It guts our ability to love the things that we love most. Not to mention the things that we struggle to love at all, right? That busyness puts us in a spin cycle, it puts us on a merry-go-round, that we lose perspective to see well, and we lose passion to love well. But it's not just a personal consequence that we bear, it's also a spiritual one as well. I love this quote, We we lose perspective, the worst hallucination busyness conjures is the conviction that I am God. All depends on me. How will the right things happen at the right time if I'm not pushing, if I'm not pulling, if I'm not watching, if I'm not wrestling? Simply put, I want to ask you, as you think about your own self, uh, why can't you stop and be still? For you personally, why is it so hard to stop? Why is there such momentum toward activity? Why is there such momentum from our anxiety that moves and pushes and pushes? No matter the fact that the work is never done, it's never over. It keeps coming back. Why do we struggle to stop? Why do we struggle to be still and to listen? what is it for you? I think for me, that last quote really hits me. If I'm not watching, if I'm not pushing, then how is something going to get done? As if the fact that when I go to sleep, as if God's not still working, as if when I take a break and I take a rest, as if God's not still working and moving the very things that he wants done. My inability to stop is frankly an assault on the sovereignty of God. Your sense of indispensability is a direct assault On the sovereignty of God. Say that again. Your personal sense of self indispensability is a direct assault on the sovereignty of God. But we can stop and we can be so because God will continue to push his kingdom forward, and he doesn't need us going all the time nonstop. We have the freedom, we have the space, we have the ability to stop because he is God, not us. And he can continue that which he desires even when we choose to stop, that we choose to be still, and we choose to get off the merry-go-round. Second, this, uh, for you as you think about your life, what cost are you paying in your own hurry and in your own haste? When you can't stop, when you can't be still, if you were to look back at the spring semester, if you were to look back so far at summer, where is it you're honestly paying a toll and a consequence? Is it mental health? Is it your physical health? Is it relationally? The very people that you hold most dear in your life, that they're just not even seeing you. Or maybe you're there, but your heart's not there. Your mind's not there. You're not loving what you love most because hurry and haste is as you on a spin cycle where you can't see anymore and you can't love anymore. Our inability to stop and be still is deadly to our lives and our hearts and our time and our relationships. We've got to learn to stop and be still. But if we were to stop and be still, then what does it actually mean to rest? I, I think a lot of us have a sense of what rest is, but I think we really miss it. Uh, I think we're really confused of what rest really looks like and what it really is. I want you to flip, uh, keep your finger here in Matthew, but I want you to flip back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, where we get to command to Sabbath. There's a several interesting things in this passage. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Notice uh, what we find. Exodus 20, verse 8 remember the sabbath day to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work but for the seventh day is the sabbath of the lord your god and in it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you for in six days the lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day the lord blessed the sabbath day and he made it holy Uh, We have many of the commandments that move from the Old Testament into the New Testament. As we get in the New Testament, I think there is still this idea of Sabbath and still this principle of work and rest, this rhythm between work and rest. To get to the New Testament, we're not mandated or commanded to practice Sabbath on a certain day of the week that we have freedom as to how we go about it. But I think we don't necessarily have freedom as if we are immune to the necessity to find this rhythm between work and rest. It still exists for us in the New Testament as the people of God in the church age. And So as we think about rest, the question is, what is it? So think about Exodus chapter 20. What we see is that God created over six days and then he took a Sabbath day, a day that was set apart in which the work ceased and he enjoyed and he looked out and he considered what the work of his hands were. And ultimately, as we're called into Sabbath, as we're called in to model and imitate the same balance of work and rest, ultimately what we're doing is we're imitating the very character and the very nature and the very work of God what Sabbath is, is a modeling and an imitating of what God himself did and what he's called us to follow suit in and practice as well. It's a day in which we're meant to be set apart from the normal responsibilities and the normal things that we take up our lives and our attention. In fact, though, I think for many of us, as we think about rest, as we practice rest, as we pursue rest, I think it's a kind of engagement and it's a kind of disengagement. What Sabbath is meant to be is a disengagement from certain things and a renewed engagement in other things. But typically what we engage in and what we disengage in or what we're supposed to be doing, we've flip-flopped. But often why we don't know how to rest is that we don't know what rest looks like. We don't experience rest. is because we've engaged in the wrong things and we've disengaged in the wrong things. Particularly, I want to highlight for you, I think, what is the difference between rest? It's not the same as leisure and amusement. Uh, I love this quote. (laughs) in which uh, Buchanan says, one of the largest obstacles to true Sabbath-keeping is leisure. Leisure is what Sabbath becomes when we no longer know how to sanctify time. Leisure is Sabbath bereft of the sacred. It is vacation, literally a vacating, an evacuation. Leisure has become despotic in our age, enslaving us and exhausting us, demanding more from us than it gives. How many times have you tried to rest and you've tried to disengage and what you ended up doing didn't bring rest and renewal at all? game of golf is that way for me, all right? Uh, there's nothing that creates more stress for me and more frustration and anger in my life than trying to rest by playing the game of golf, all right? Uh, I might have taken a club my freshman year in college and swung at my bag in frustration, shattered clubs, launched my bag about 10-15 yards in the air. I learned then my freshman year in college, this is probably not the best way for me to unplug and be renewed, right? Uh, but for some of us, how much of it is for us, we go to Netflix, right? Which is, here's a fun meme, and Netflix gives you 15 seconds between episodes. So to decide if you 're doing anything with your life today, you laugh, but you laugh because you know right i 'll just watch one more episode right, and then one more episode, and then Saturday is gone, right, and you 're like, "Why am I so just exhausted right?" Uh, when my, Marcy and I lived in Dallas some years ago in seminaries, this is kind of an older show. Uh, but I don't know if any of you guys love the show Twenty Four. Well, we had some neighbors that would watch the TV show Twenty Four, but they would literally watch it in real time. Meaning, this we'd see them one night and they would start an episode, and then they would watch episode after episode back to back to back over twenty four hours. And so we'd see them the next evening, and they've watched the whole season, eyes bloodshot, stressed out of their mind. They haven't like washed or bathed, right? They haven't seen a soul person other than themselves, and they're just stressed out of their mind, thinking the. World's about to be over. Okay, that's a kind of rest that's frankly demanding more and exhausting them more than it was refreshing and renewing. And yet, all of us do that all the time, right? I, I love this quote as well. Thinking about modern entertainment and amusement, people will come to love their oppression, to adore their technologies that undo their capacities to think. The truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance, and as we would become a trivial culture, having failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions and pleasures. It's interesting, this book and this quote comes from a book in the 80s that was written at a time in which the TV was coming into the center point of the living room for American culture. And it was highlighting what was probably going to happen long before Netflix, long before Hulu, long before all the amazing amount of choices on demand for us today to wash out our minds and to pull away. It's interesting, the word amuse or muse literally means to think or ponder. So, so to amuse is literally to not think and not ponder, right? Much of amusement and much of entertainment is an ability for us to shut off our minds and to not have to think and to not have to engage, but to disengage entirely. And I say that not at all to hit you as if you shouldn't be watching something this afternoon, so I probably will as well, right? But there's a a rhythm and and a balance and a calibration of how much we kind of rest, let ourselves disengage, but also try to find a balance in which we also engage. That what Sabbath is, is a disengagement from work, but an engagement in something else that causes us to think and to pay attention to what we don't see when we're in constant hurry and constant haste, spinning and spinning when we cannot see. Sabbath is a stop order from all of that so that we can actually stop and have perspective to see who God is, what God's calling us to, and have perspective on life. Here's a great quote as to what Sabbath was intended to be. Sabbath imparts the rest of God, actual, physical, mental, spiritual rest, but also the things of God's nature and presence that we miss in our busyness. This is where we engage. Sabbath is a day set aside for feasting and resting and worship and play. It is a gift from God. It is also an attitude, a perspective, an orientation of the heart when the world around us is unrestful and it's swirling. The Sabbath is a kind of engagement, seeing who God is and the ability to stop in him, not away from him, to be reminded as to who he is, reminded of how he's created the world, to remind us of who we are as well. That apart from our ability to stop and be still, we'll never have the perspective to see who God is and what he's called us to be and to do, and we'll never have the ability to also have passion to love that which he's called us to love unless we learn to stop and be still. And to stop this spin cycle that continues to disorient us and confuse us. So if you want to have a better sense of what it looks like to rest, what rest is intended to be, then how do we actually pursue it? How do we begin to actually change some of the rhythms in our life so that we actually have an opportunity and a shot at pursuing rest when there's so much inertia and there's so much momentum for us to not stop? I'm going to give you guys five quick tips as to, I think, how we begin to build rest into our lives and practically what do we do today? What do we do tomorrow? What do we do this week? What do we do this summer to begin to recalibrate our own senses of this rhythm of work and rest? Here's the first idea. The first is this. It's simple. Stop. <laughs> that you and I have to, at times, schedule unscheduled time in our lives. That you and I actually have to reserve on a that some moments that we're going to put our devices away. Maybe we're going to even step out of relationships and we're just going to stop. Computer, phone, work away. And we're going to just listen and be still. This is a uh, lost art in today's culture that is constantly noisy, constantly loud, constantly bombarded with messages and devices that are always wanting your attention over and over and over again. That we've lost the ability to stop. We've lost the ability to be still. We've lost the ability to be quiet. So one of the first things that we have to learn to do in order to rebuild and recalibrate some rhythm of work and rest is that we have to find and fight the inertia and to schedule some unscheduled time. Make an appointment for yourself, right? Build some time in the morning before your kids are up. And it's like a jailbreak in my house when they're up, right? The only time I'm going to have a chance to stop and be still is if I get up before them. It's the only chance I got. And so some of us is that we stop. The second thing I think for some of us is that we sleep. That that you and I actually can trust that God is still at work even when we are sleeping. It's interesting. Jewish Sabbath started in the evening. It began at night. Because they recognize that physical rest sets up spiritual rest. I love this quote, sleep is a position of vulnerability, defenselessness of dependency that we do well in under one of two conditions, utter exhaustion or complete confidence, right? How many of us, as we fall asleep at night, it's because we've just hit the finish line with everything that we got and it's just utter exhaustion and I'm out. Uh, My wife and I used to laugh at, you know, kind of the whole idea of pillow talk. Well, there's some nights where we just hit the pillow and like it's, it's gone. Like there's, there's no conversation. We are just utterly exhausted. That's sometimes a sign and a marker that maybe this idea of rest and work is a little off rhythm because we hit the bed completely wiped out. Sometimes for us, it's a sign as we hit it that we're completely confident and we can relax into sleep knowing that someone could come and pummel us right, right in the middle of the night, right? But it's a sign of safety, a sign of completion, a sign of confidence that we can just rest and sleep and shut down and that sleep is a great thing. That if your uh, sense of anxiety and stress is off the charts, it may be because you are not sleeping, right? You're like my neighbors that watch 24 in 24 hours, right? They're completely off. Sometimes sleep is one of the first things that begins to reset us. And so sometimes we have to stop and we have to maybe just sleep. Here's the third thing, though, uh, is that we stop, we sleep. And then lastly, that we begin to, or not lastly, but third, that we begin to see God's sovereignty and our dispensability. A good definition of Sabbath is this, uh, that that imitating God so that we stop trying to be God. We mirror divine behavior only to freshly discover our human limitations. Sabbath keeping involves a recognition of our own weakness and smallness, that we are made from dust, that we hold our treasure in clay jars, and without proper care we break. That as I think about Sabbath, did God actually need on the seventh day to stop from his work? Was he tired? Clearly no, right? The infinite in God doesn't get weary and exhausted. He's not tired. That's not why he stopped. That's why sometimes we have to stop. One of the favorite things I think about as, as our kids were really little is that we would often, sometimes as they were trying to do daytime naps and they didn't want to miss out on life, right? They didn't want to miss out on whatever was going to happen. Uh, we would lay down beside them and we would imitate sleep, right? Uh, we would act like we were going to fall asleep. But what would happen about 10 minutes later as the kid is asleep? Mom and dad also fall asleep, right? That in the imitation and the laying on the side of all of a sudden that imitation begins to take over us as well because we also needed to stop and rest. That in the imitation of the pattern of God who didn't need to rest because he was tired, we have the opportunity to imitate his pattern. And in that imitation, we fall asleep and we shut down and we recalibrate ourselves as well. That's why we're called to imitate it. I, I love this quote as well thinking of this idea that the truly purposeful have an iconic secret. They manage time less and they pay attention more. So they notice that they're fully awake. And I think more and more as I think about what rest means, it's the ability to see. It's the ability to pay attention, to not be so hurried that we miss the things of God, who God is and what he's doing in our lives and in our world. One of the things for Marcy and I through the years that we constantly laugh about is that we have an uncanny ability to burn almonds in the oven as we're trying to toast them. Like every time, like every single time we're trying to cook some almonds for a salad or something, we burn them every time. Why? Because we begin to multitask as they're cooking. Even though we may have a timer, the timer goes off, but we're off to something else and in our hurry and our haste, we lose sight of the fact that these almonds are now burning. Isn't that life though, right? The the hurry and the haste is what obscures our vision and we don't see. And sometimes we just have to stop and not manage time. And then the ability to not manage time and to not multitask, all of a sudden we can see in a way that we don't normally see. Sabbath at its very essence is an ability to pay attention and to see. And in the midst of hurry and haste, we lose that. Fourth thing, and this for me is the biggest one. This is where I want to lay on myself and where I want to lay on you guys a little bit to say this, that the fourth thing that we have to do in order to begin to recalibrate this idea of work and rest and that rhythm is that you and I have to slay the taskmasters of guilt and anxiety that are in our lives. How many times do you want to shut it down and you have that voice in your head that says, it's, the project's not done. You could do a little bit more, right? Or if you shut down, what's going to happen, right? It's going to fail. You're going to be miserable. You're going to lose your job. You're going to have no home. You're going to have no food on the table. Your whole life is ruined if you stop right now, right? Right. Anxiety and and guilt just move and circle in us and move us and spur us the moment we begin to want to shut it down, to lean into the rest that God's called us to. That is a gift. Anxiety and guilt spur us and continue to push us back into motion. I love this quote, thinking of this idea, uh, thinking of the fact that it's going to be out of Egypt as, this, as Israel were slaves in the midst of constant activity, constant work order that would never stop, that Sabbath comes to train a nation how to work and how to rest. Buchanan says this, that the lie the taskmasters want you to swallow is that you cannot reset until your work's all done. But the work's never done and never done quite right. It's always more than you can finish. Sabbath is a stop work order in the midst of work that's never complete, never polished. Sabbath is not the break that we've allotted at the tail end of completing all of our obligations. It's the rest we take smack dab in the middle of them, without apology, without guilt, and for no better reason than God told us we could. One of the, I think, one of the most confusing things for our college students as they graduate and they step in the real world is that life is not driven off of semesters with syllabuses that allow you to hit December or May, and it's all done, right? Adulting is this parenting work life everything is a is a giant mound that keeps building and you spend the entire week trying to bring the mound down and it keeps coming up and it's never flattened out and it just keeps growing right which adds to the anxiety and it adds to the stress of the fact that you're never going to be done. There is no finish line. There is no sense of completion in parenting, in work, in life, in home. There's always something you could be doing. So how in the world do you ever stop if you're looking for completion as a sign that you can stop and rest? Guilt says don't stop. You can't stop till it's done. Anxiety says if you do stop, what's going to happen? It's going to all fall apart those two voices circle us and enslave us and take away our freedom and our ability to just stop and be still. And I said, and I use the verb slay here because honestly, for us to begin to recalibrate ourselves, you have to actually put these things to death. And it's going to be a battle. It's, it's ironic to, to, to want to rest, to want to move toward a vacation, to want to get away. It would seem like an, a move of ease And yet it's an absolute battle, which is why we never get to experience it the way we should. Because guilt and anxiety circle us and surround us and hem us in and box us in so that we cannot let go. Keep driving us, keep driving us. And so what does it look like for you to say to those voices this afternoon? You're done. No more. It's not true that I cannot rest when it's not done. It's not true that if I rest, it will all fall apart. That is not true. Why? As a creator, God is there to sustain because my indispensability is an absolute threat to his sovereignty. And when I realize that I am dispensable, when I realize that I can stop, then I recognize that he is sovereign and I don't have to keep driving. I don't have to keep pushing. I can stop and I can be still. You have to take them out back and you have to beat them because they will continue to come back up on us. Fifth thing. Last thing. Be strengthened. Play, laugh, love, and sing. That Sabbath and rest is a gift of God. That God created over six days he worked and in the seventh day he looked out on what he made and he said it was good. And I think Sabbath for us is not meant to be an eternal day-long church service, although that's a place that we come and we pay attention to the truths of God. But even more so, it's meant to be a day in which we can get away and we can enjoy the work of our hands. We can enjoy the work of the creator, God, and the creation itself. We can enjoy the relationships that he's put in our lives. That we can enjoy all the gifts that he's put in our lives. And we can enjoy them with a recognition that they're from him. That they remind us of his goodness. That they restore our soul. And that we don't have to feel guilty to stop and enjoy what he's put in our lives. To engage that which we love most and those that we love most him who we love most as well that our rest isn't away from him but it's in him and in all the provisions and all the blessings he's put in our life and so my challenge for us this morning as we wrap up is simple this what does it look like for you this week to stop to be still to not disengage away from the presence of God, but to engage and to rest in his presence, giving him gratefulness for the gifts he's put in your life, the relationships he's put in your life, for the blessings he's put in your life, that you can look out on it and say that it is good, that you can taste and enjoy and be renewed. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks. You're so utterly patient with us. I thank you that in the midst of the nation of Israel, stepping out of Egypt, that out of slavery that you would put to death those taskmasters in the Red Sea, that you would drive them out for the all of eternity, Lord, and yet we bring them back and we resurrect them back into our hearts and our minds as guilt and anxiety drive us. I pray this morning that you would give us a fresh sense, a renewed sense that you've called us to rest, that you've given us to us as a gift, to see you, to commune with you, to enjoy that which you've placed in our lives, to be renewed and to be rested irrespective of the fact that the work is never done. The responsibilities are never crossed off the list. The boxes are never checked. The emails are never responded to. There's always more. There's always more. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us the peace, the freedom to stop in the midst of that and to see you, to see what you're doing in our lives and to see the people you've put in our lives, Lord, that you'd give us the ability to not just see, but to love the things you've caused us to feel most deeply about activities that renew us, that thrive us, that uh, lift our spirits, that lift our souls, that are like food for us. Lord, I pray that you begin to allow us to move into that place and begin to explore what it would look like to recalibrate and to find a new rhythm in these tensions. Not that you got to be crazy uh, with a new step this week, Lord, but that we would begin to ease into it and begin to explore it slowly but surely, trusting you in it, hearing your voice that it would be louder and louder calling us and ushering us in to stop and to be still Lord I pray that even as we respond this morning in worship Lord that you would allow us to, to see you to hear your voice afresh that you allow the hurry and the haste to stop and you allow us to get off the merry-go-round and to hear your voice, to behold your beauty, to recognize Lord that we need you desperately and there's no other place that we find rest than in your presence and in your hands Lord ask for these things this morning through your son by your spirit we pray amen